Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is the Greta Thunberg of dumping fossil fuels into America's lakes and rivers, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? How dare you? (laughs) All right. All right. All right, all right. <laughs> if you want to how dare us, you can email us, podcast at romancircusblog.com. We're on Twitter, at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you want, and you can find us pretty much anywhere podcasts are. Is that it? I feel like I left something out. Did I do all of it? I think that was everything. Did you, uh, you told me to give us money? Yeah, that's implied every time we turn on the microphones. Okay. Yeah, I think that's everything. I mean, obviously they're listening to us, so they found it. Legends. Uh, okay, so we've haven't, we haven't been here for a few weeks. Well, we've been here. We just haven't done the podcast. So, Zach, what's in the news? We have two weeks of news to catch up on. Two weeks of news. Lay it on us. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on involving climate change. um, And this this, uh, teenager named Greta who spoke at the United Nations. I'll be honest, I tend to just stay out of these conversations. Whenever one side of any argument, you know, brings out like a child or like a war widow or something, it's just better not to comment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I also don't feel very strongly about the issue at all. I mean, a lot of the proposed solutions to climate change, I think, are uh, pretty solid things, you know, like clean water. I think that's great. So, yeah, it's just not one of those issues that gets me worked up. I guess nothing gets me worked up these days. Mm-hmm. Ever since the great unwork opening of 2018. Yeah, I when I decided to let go... And let mm-hmm. God. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Um, let's see. There was big movement in our, you know, one of our feature topics, Free Britney. Okay. Um, there was a hearing, and it turns out they interviewed all of her family members individually. And at least w- the, what they're reporting is that her mother was trying to explain to the court that her dad is like an unstable person. We'll see if that gets any movement. And then... The, one thing that kind of underpins the whole Free Britney thing is the potential that everyone's got it wrong and that she's just fine. And since she's not really able to comment on any of this, nobody really knows. Like, the main thing that confirms it is that her mom, Lynn, goes sometimes on Instagram and likes Free Britney-related posts from her actual Instagram. And then there was uh, the involvement of uh, David LaChapelle. Yeah, he just had a new Netflix special, right? Right, no, that's Dave Chappelle. Okay. Um, okay. The is that his name? The music video, French Dave Chappelle, right? David mm-hmm. La Chappelle. Yes. You know, he's obviously for a lot of people. If they if they can name exactly one visual artist that does photographs and music videos, he's the one they could name. I'm trying to think of the other guy that does a lot of videos. Anyway, so. He said some things about how he was uncomfortable working with her because of how she's treated by the people around her. And then there was this sort of 
Instagram cryptic post that Brittany made um, on Instagram where she used the term free like ten times in one sentence, and how she loves being free or she she doesn't like to not be free. But again, while she you know I'm not here to insult anyone, especially you know an adult. She's got two kids, but she has a, a ninth grade education, and she was talking about a book she was reading that was a book about like. I think Zodiac stuff, so, you know, to be avoided. So you never really know. Oh, so yeah. not like the killer, like the astrology thing. Oh, yeah, no, not Ted Cruz's the Zodiac Killer. It's a book okay. about astrology. Right. But then she used it to say that it she likes to be free and she likes to be allowed to travel. And mm-hmm. the comments that she made did seem sort of pointed, as if, like, to the best of her ability, you know, as a hostage, she's able to say... <laughs> um, I'm want to be free. So the and there was a, a much larger public rally. So it's getting more media coverage. And again, I just want to remind everybody, it's not about this. It's not about me at all. You know, this movement is about not me. But I was the one that clued all of you in on this. Like I've clued a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. I've been on the. I've been on top of this the entire year. And yeah, it's I, true. You know, so again, not it's not about me. But I will say that I've done a lot for this movement. A lot, you know, more than her sister. Okay. Who's no, been I agree. Completely unhelpful. I just want to put it out there. <laughs> okay, all right. No, that's good. That's good to hear. Or is it? I don't know. Whatever it is, we hope. We, we need hope to get. We have friends that are friends with Perez Hilton. We need to get like a phone call with him. That's true. That's true. We're, let's we, set that up. As soon as we're done, we're gonna. Okay, yeah, we're gonna set that up. Just blast right through. Blast right through all the all the smoke screens and get to Perez Hilton. Be like, Perez, you don't know us, but we were given your number by our friend who you trashed. No hard feelings. We need to talk. <laughs> um, no. Uh, anyway. Uh, actually, he's probably gone after a couple of our friends, but never us. He's never gone after us, thankfully. No, That's the best thing about no one knowing who you are. Exactly. All right. I want to interject and Wait, do speaking a... speaking of that... Nope, nope, nope. Still my turn. Um, okay. <laughs> other news okay. is that you're not on social media. Or not on Twitter. Hey, hey, it's Matt at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Is is uh, is is estranged. It currently doesn't exist. I know. Yeah. How does it feel? It feels perfectly fine. I'm not one of those guys. I I don't. I don't. You're not like, like chained to Twitter. Eh. Well, no. I mean, my. Po- I was going to say I. I never like when people talk about who are all, a lot a lot of people who are on Twitter and always on Twitter are just like Twitter's so bad like it wastes time right so I'm not right. here to do that I just got inspired by our Marie Kondo episode and realized that currently at the moment Twitter was not sparking joy so I decided to get rid of it incredible that's um, really what it was there was it just wasn't a thing that I was enjoying getting on and i was not enjoying seeing people always i'm not saying people can't have opinions but it's just like i mean some people shouldn't be allowed to but i mean of course but it's just a constant barrage and i mean whatever it's i i like i said i have no reason to bash it i've made friends over there over on twitter and we've gotten great guests and everything has gone well for the podcast but like i logged into the podcast twitter a few days ago just to see if see the thousands of messages from our millions of fans and the first i know i wish we could read all of them i do i it's anyway it really yeah i know we don't have the time but uh 
the first thing I saw was people arguing about candy. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll go. Oh, yeah. I won't get into it, but that was. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Go so I, I don't know. I had never deactivated my account before, and I decided I would try it. And I am currently not missing it as an overall thing. But I'll uh-huh. probably be back at some point. TBD. But yeah. Yeah, that's... So, like, when I have quit Twitter, normally after a few days, I'm like, oh, this is great. This is great. And then eventually I'm like, all right, I want to go back. Yeah, I, what I, my main thing is I wanted to make sure that it didn't come across like I was trying to make a statement or come across, like, holier than thou. Because really it just was me just wanting to do it. It, it. I mean, whatever. It is what it is. So that's that's kind of all it was. And, yeah, here I am thriving, Zach. I went to a restaurant the other day with my brother and a couple friends and the waiter came over at one point and goes, how are we doing over here, guys? Are we still thriving? I was like, well, yeah, I'm thriving every moment of my life. But, you know, as far as this meal is concerned, yes, we are thriving. I'd never had a waiter say that to me before. I guess I'm just glad to know that you're thriving. You know, I'm always worried about what you're what you're doing or thinking about because I, you know, I can't just log on Twitter and see it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you're doing well and I don't have to worry about you. Thanks. Thank you very much. My whole life is just one big thrive. Okay, uh, the next thing I want to do, one more news item, and I wanted to introduce a new news segment that I just came up right be- with before the episode, and it's called Zach Explains to Me What This Means, okay? Uh-oh, okay. It's a th- uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to read a news thing, and you're going to explain to me what it means. You don't... If you don't know, that's fine, uh, but we'll, we'll see how it goes, okay? Okay. It, from Reuters.com or but, Reuters. So Reuters is a, a newswire service. They are general purpose, and they kind of cover a bit of everything. Okay, that's your one for one. That was practice. You did good, okay? Okay. The headline reads, Fed adds long-term cash to U.S. banking system. I'm going to read a little bit of the article, and you tell me what this means. Sure. The Federal Reserve on Tuesday injected longer-term cash into the U.S. banking system in an effort to meet the funding needs of banks and Wall Street following a bout of turbulence in money markets last week. The New York Federal Reserve added $30 billion cash to the banking system through 14-day loans to primary dealers. These 14-day term repurchase agreements were on top of the $75 billion in temporary cash through an overnight repo operation. So, Zach, what does that mean? Did the banks just get free money? What what happens when this happens? Do you know? Yeah, so when this happens, basically banks are holding US bonds that they they have sitting there. You know, the okay. government debt. And, you know, they're making some money off of this or other kinds of debts because banks are, you know, their business is to make money off of lending money. Um, sure. And so when they get cash injected, basically the government goes in and buys those loans – or sorry, not the government. The Federal Reserve goes in and buys those either government bonds or other loans and gives them cash. So it's like a trade. Like if you were the bank, you used to have this loan that you were getting payments on. Now you have cash and the Federal Reserve has a loan that they're getting payments on. So it's a trade. That's the general way that the Federal Reserve puts money into the banking system because then the bank is like, okay, we have cash, 
this doesn't do anything. We need to go have people borrow more money so we can make more money. Now, with some of these repos, those are a bit more exotic and there may be a little bit more going on. But in general, it essentially involves some kind of exchange of value where the, the Fed's giving cash to the banks and vice versa. Does that okay. make sense? Kind of. So the does this does this help at all? Is this one of those things that, uh, like, will the, the public at large be assisted by this? I mean, probably not. But then again, it's it's one of those things where, like, if there was some kind of serious cash problem that caused a run on banks, that would affect a lot of people because banks would collapse and they would lose their money. Right. And so that's bad. The other thing is I know that in, like, the 2008 stimulus that took place or set whenever it was, there was the speculation that basically had that not happened, like had the Bush administration not acted, there would have been, like you would have gone to the ATM and no cash would have come out. Like things were that desperate all of a sudden. Okay. So, you know, it's tough because the Federal Reserve has various mechanisms for, it basically, you have to look at them as like the super bank. They're like the mother bank. Mm -hmm. So like when you, Matt Baker, go and borrow you know, $300,000 to get a house. Okay. The bank gives you the $300,000 cash that you used to buy the house with. And now you have a mortgage with the bank, right? Okay. So in these arrangements, so the, the bank now doesn't have that cash. The federal reserve in doing these programs, they say, okay, well we will buy Matt's mortgage and then we'll give you the cash. So then they get the cash back, the 300,000, you know, give or take. But now the federal reserve the loan's going to go to them. So they're no longer going to earn anything off of your loan. Like, it's done. Mm-hmm. So, again, I mean, the nice thing is, is people don't seem to understand that, like, what, what actually props up the U.S. dollar is the U.S. military, um, and that doesn't seem to be suffering. So, you know, I don't think we're at risk of, of anything catastrophic. And if we are, the whole world will collapse with us, so you won't really be any worse off comparatively. So, you know. Rest easy, fam. Okay, good. I hope that worked out. That was the first. Zach explains uh, what something means. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, next up, let's talk schism, Zach. You said okay. you wanted to discuss that this week, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, there's always talk about how Pope Francis is going to completely ruin the church and is going to throw us into schism or throw us into heresy or throw us into, I don't know, whatever people want to be scared of. So you had some thoughts. Where do you want to start? I mean, one thing, I guess, is to sort of talk about the situation that we find ourselves in. People now openly talk about how the church is heading for a schism, like basically a split Mm -hmm. in the church, you know, comparable to like the big Eastern schism that gave us the Eastern Orthodox churches Mm -hmm. or, um, the Western schism, which was resolved. But basically, so there's different ways to be a, I don't know if you call it infidel, or like basically to be out of sync with the church. Mm -hmm. So one of them is to be a heretic, where you basically, you have rejected an article of faith. One of them is to be an apostate, where you've rejected Christ entirely, or the faith entirely. Another one of them is schism, where you haven't rejected a matter of faith and morals per se, but you've rejected the authority of the church. You have you have removed yourself from the church's jurisdiction. Right. So okay. heresy 
heresy would be like saying obviously we did episodes on that and people know but it'd be like saying that god is not a trinity god is a quadrinity that would be a heresy right and then apostate would be if you're catholic and you reject catholicism and either uh, you know join another church another religion or go, go or, confess to plants yeah or go conf- right go confess to the plants that's apostasy so schism is uh would that would you say that set our set of acontists in schism um i mean a lot of those people are just unwell um but <laughs> yes okay. because the legitimate and lawful authority of the church right um is is pope francis with pope benedict mm-hmm. before him jp2 and 1 before them mm-hmm. and pope paul and pope john um yes the because they reject that he was the Pope and they remove themselves from his authority by doing that, then that is schismatic. Um, there are also, there are also heresies involved with that sort of movement. The seat of a contest hold to things that are false. And so, uh, for instance, the notion that the church could promulgate an invalid sacramental ritual. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a heresy. The church can't do that. So, you know, again, basically, you normally don't get them by themselves. Like, usually there's a bit of a mixture between them. But ultimately, a, a schismatic does not have to hold any false beliefs. Yeah, that's, that's, where, that's the main difference, really. So, okay, what, what brought this on in your... Like, did you see... I'm going to say, you know, because I have not haven't been on Twitter. Has there been, like, a big hubbub, or is it just, like, the normal, ooh, Pope Francis, ooh, ooh, he'll get you type stuff? Yeah, it's so it's it's kind of just a continuing of that train of thought. Um, uh-huh. You know, I think a lot of this started up around the second Synod on the Family, where people mm. thought, you know, oh, is, is Pope Francis leading the church towards a schism? Or right. will there be a schism? And then you kind of had a train of action starting with not necessarily the dubia itself, because the dubia itself was, you know, that's that's a cardinal's duty to do when when they judge that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that Pope Francis chose to keep them as cardinals, and so you know that was all kind of above board. Um, but since then, you've had you know, these open letters and you have the filial correction and all these different things where there's been this sort of growing resistance movement to the actions of Pope Francis. Well, yeah, um, I was going to say, do you, do you, I was thinking about the Vigano letter. I mean, that, that didn't really promote any type of schism. That didn't really promote any type of action that would push towards schism, but I could see where that would be taken as such and could end up I don't know, pushing people towards that in a way. Right. It definitely didn't help with that part. But I mean, again, it didn't, you know, we discussed how it overstepped the line as far as calling on Pope Francis to resign. But beyond that, it wasn't advocating schism. It was advocating, you know, reform or investigation, if you will. So that part was fine. But again, it did sort of kind of start this growing movement where you know, it does appear that certain groups seem to be obstinately opposed to Pope Francis. 
Mm-hmm. I think this was. It gets furthered when you look into things like the death penalty stuff. You know, people have just made such a big deal about. I mean, of course, we know that as a matter of faith and morals, the death penalty, of course, is fine, but that that its right. application in this time, as judged prudentially by the Holy Father, is disallowed. And so that's right. Just he didn't. The, he didn't actually change the church teaching on it, right? He just said, at this time, it should. It's not permissible. And right. He didn't it, declare it evil. He right. declared he it. Even, he said you can't do it. He said it. Didn't his letter even state the death penalty is not intrinsically evil? It is just not permissible. Like that was basically the wording, right? That I don't actually know because there were a couple. I mean, because John Paul II kind of had a similar thing with the death penalty and that may have been his his wording about okay. um but basically you know the you can argue about some of the language used and this and that but ultimately the the meat of the message was stop doing the death penalty okay this has really riled people up because you know they think that that you know this is a problem because obviously you know since you know beginning of the church the church has upheld that the death penalty is legitimate state action and yada yada um Mm -hmm. that isn't changing what's changing is um are you can you do it now and no you can't that that is what has changed and so and they don't seem to understand the concept of authority and jurisdiction that yes it is a prudential matter to say that the death penalty should not be used right now but it is the holy father's it's his prudential judgment to make like he he gets to say that and then out of obedience we don't do the death penalty it doesn't mean we have to change our beliefs on the morality of the death penalty it means we have to change our practice mm-hmm. you know i mean it's similar to when uh, your local government changes the speed limit to a ridiculously low speed you don't have to think that 30 degree or 30 miles per hour is a reasonable speed limit you just have to drive 30 miles per hour it's it's kind of an interesting argument, too, because, I mean, we're not even in a position to... Right, like, I am not executing death. anybody, so, like, it doesn't... Right. And as a nation, as the United States, we do, like, 20 of these a year. So it's mm-hmm. not actually a big issue, okay? And mm-hmm. in a certain sense, it's sort of an easy win with, with people that are generally hostile to the church. And so I don't see anything wrong with taking those wins, especially when there's no consequence. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, mm-hmm. nothing is going to happen. It, we don't do that. We don't do the death penalty that much as it as it stands. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never do it, but uh, you know, as a country, <laughs> yeah, I'm down to two a week. So I really have I've really scaled back since since Pope Francis said to stop doing it. Right, but you just saw this absolute refusal to to listen to it, to think about it, to you know anything and then all of a sudden it's like everybody's favorite topic and it's like guys there have probably now been more you know papers written about the death penalty in the past year than there have been executions in the past decade well i mean that's just that's just a a lib argument to combat abortion but it really like if you if you're against abortion why are you for the death penalty you know that whole thing, but anyway, right? We're, and, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that it's such a non-issue, sure, talk about why those are totally different things and they're not related. But why, you could just skip that argument because there's no consequence to just saying, "Okay, yeah, no death penalty for now." Mm-hmm. Sure, nothing happens. So again, 
you just sort of see this this growing just absolute refusal to show any deference to the Holy Father. You begin to see people feeling much more bold in criticizing him. And, you know, for the most part, the people doing this, I do think that they're doing it out of a sense of duty. They think that, you know, that there are souls at stake and that they have a duty to speak out and to resist, you know, sure. Pope Francis. I don't think that they just get bored and decide to start criticizing him. Say, start, I don't know, finding pictures of Pope Francis frowning and deducing from that that he's evil. I don't know. Just to take a... Well, right. So then you, you get a certain number of people that have just become so obsessed with it. I mean, you just know that they wake up in the morning and the first thing they want to do is be like, oh, what did Bergoglio say? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just made this their whole thing. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are concerned about schism is sort of the... It feels like in a much more organized, focused opposition to the Holy Father than we've had under previous popes. I mean, obviously, there was a ton of opposition to Benedict XVI and John Paul II. Sure. um, By various groups in the church. But it was always, you know, newspapers no one reads, like the National Catholic Reporter. Or, you know, dying organizations like like all the the American nuns. It, It wasn't young guys with podcasts or, you know... Pop, uh, uh, profitable websites, you know, it, it wasn't, it was never really an energized movement. And mm-hmm. the concern there with, with now is that there is just this, you know, this opposition. On That's one side. Now, on the other side, I think we have people who are friendly to Pope Francis. They, you know, consider him an ally. They defend him, but they're very quick to accuse other people of disloyalty and of being schismatics sure you know you'll see this when they discuss you know they they just start you know referring to people who are you know factually um within the jurisdiction of the church you know belong to a parish uh that belongs to a diocese that is in union with the holy see and they begin to already start referring to these people as schismatic because they don't like pope francis or because they criticize him or you know disagree with him on this or that um, they immediately jump to accusing that. You'll see them even do this with cardinals, like, for instance, Cardinal Burke. These people will accuse, you know, Cardinal Burke of, of promoting schism or being schismatic or, uh, you know, pseudo-schismatic or different things. You know, I again, I think they're motivated by being opposed to schism, but you you can't, like, you know, if you're, if you're flirting with a line of, of schism, something terrible. I mean, our Lord prayed in the garden that we'd be one. You really shouldn't go around drawing lines that that cut other people off if if the church itself considers them to be still in the flock. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, we've talked about it before. We it's kind of a bummer going after each other because there are enough people going after Catholicism as is, so why why do you want to spend a lot of time infighting? Right. It, it may seem counterintuitive, but, like, you know, if if you wanted to oppose, like, I don't know, the chicken pox, you'd have to stay away from people that have the chicken pox. Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, with schism, it doesn't work that way. You can't divide your... You can't cut yourself off from schismatics in order to prevent schism, right? Like, so surely you can see that if, if schism is, you know, a sin against unity, you can't prevent it by choosing to be not united 
to people who you have determined are schismatic. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. In a way. So, you know, ultimately there's always kind of an authority figure, and it's the church, you know, ultimately leads up to the Holy Father. So when we look at cardinals, Cardinal Burke is regularly portrayed in the media as being opposed to Francis. You see this from both kind of progressives in the media and some of your you know, conservative and some traditionalists who see him as kind of their guy to oppose and resist Pope Francis. Right, right. Cardinal Burke's own words and actions do not actually square with this at all. He has been loyal to the Pope in all of his actions. He defers to the Pope. He doesn't take cheap shots at him. Well, even even the 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 issue, the Malta stuff, like he kind of accepts... Even even things that people portray as injustices, he accepts, and he's not really out there being vocally like fighting against it. Right? He's not like ginning up his support base and and like leading a storm to get stuff back. He just kind of accepts it and continues on. Right? Right. I mean, you know, in the exercise of his office as cardinal, there have been times where it is clear that him and the Holy Father do not see eye to eye on things. But if you look at how these situations have gone down, there has always been a clear respect for, you know, the authority of the Pope. And he's he knows who his superior is. And we so we're so we live such in the moment that people I don't know. I mean, maybe they don't, but it seems like people think that Cardinal Burke is the first cardinal to ever have a disagreement with the Pope. Right. Like it's it's. It happens with every pope, and it happens with tons of cardinals. It's just Cardinal Burke has elevated to, like you said, like a trad folk hero, and so these things get covered a little more differently. Right. And, I mean, in any organization, there's going to be disagreements between individuals about how to do certain things, and as long as the hierarchy and authority is respected in those situations, that is for the good of the organization, you Mm -hmm. know? Sure. I, mean, I had I've had things at work where I disagreed with my manager, and wait, wait, wait. you're you are your own manager. Well, past past lives in my oh, in my okay. old world, you know. And, and he and I would discuss, and we'd come to di- we'd have different conclusions, and we'd each lay out our case. And ultimately, you know, he was the authority, so his decision stayed, and I was fine with that. But it was also my job to at least put forth my point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so sure. I was being a good, you know. That's that's how that's part of being obedient, you know, is doing what the job you're entrusted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we we make a big everyone made a big fuss recently about how starting in October, um, a majority of the cardinals will have been created by Pope Francis, right? Like fifty three percent of them. But guys, right now, as in today, one hundred percent of the cardinals that are currently in the College of Cardinals are chosen by Pope Francis because it is. They're his cardinals. He can, without any explanation, he doesn't have to appeal to a committee. He doesn't have to have cause. He can just say, you know, person X, you're no longer a cardinal. Yeah. Right. That is in his authority. 100% of the cardinals, which means every day he chooses to have Cardinal Burke as his cardinal. So, again, to portray this as a rift between them, I think, is the facts don't add up. And it really doesn't matter... If he does that, so he because he likes Cardinal Burke, or he does that to appease 
the conservative wing of the church. It, it doesn't really matter. It just matters that Cardinal Burke is still a cardinal. He cho- he chooses to continue to let him be a cardinal. Right. I mean, you can speculate on why he does that, but you know, I think part of trusting it is trusting that he's come to the right conclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, yeah, if it is to appease this group or this or that. I, his judgment is this person should be in the college of cardinals so i don't think he needs us to interject and try to you know defend him from his own cardinals or you know declare when you're doing this and you're talking about his cardinals as if they're not loyal or they're insubordinate you're without maybe realizing it you're saying that he doesn't know how to to manage his own cardinals that like as a superior he can't do his job and that even goes for Pro Pope Francis, like Pope Francis, no, they're the defenders. worst. About, they they do this more, like, right? I mean, because again, they, yeah, you do it because they're just a larger group. Well, yeah, but they but they do it. Yeah, they they constantly are like talking about this and that. Like like Pope Francis has no idea what's going on. Like we all kind of both sides kind of in their own way just think that Pope Francis has no idea what's happening. It's very weird. They don't like right. the. I mean, he's not a damsel in distress. He doesn't need you to protect him from his own cardinals. Yeah, I don't know. It's if it's again, it all comes from a place of love. Like they, we love the church, and I mean, yes, I hope so. And we, it seems to. And we love the Pope and Pope, you know. But it gets like, what is he? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like he. He knows what's happening in Germany, right? He knows what's going on over there. He knows what's going on with the car. He knows the cardinals. He, he's met the cardinals. He's met. Yeah, I mean, he was educated in Germany, guys, and his family's Italian. He knows he's not. I mean, he's an outsider, but he's also not. And he wasn't born yesterday. He, he was a bouncer, so he could probably take any of these guys in a fist fight. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I yeah, but, shouldn't. He's not a delicate little flower. Yeah. So, I don't know. Anyway, how does this but, all know, go again, back to he, what you're talking about? He is the superior. He is, you know, he's the cardinal's superior. They report to him. So it's his judgment that matters. He is the one that decides whether those cardinals are, you know, have crossed the line or they've become schismatic or they've done mm-hmm. this or that. He's the one charged with disciplining them, not the National Catholic Reporter, not Commonweal. Not Massimo Fagioli. Again, you know, friends of friend of the show. They have to defer to the Pope too, and this is where what worries me about the schism thing is you've kind of got both sides pointing the finger at the other side. One side says, "Okay, Pope Francis is leading the Church into heresy with Amoris Laetitia and the death penalty and the yada yada," and then you have the other mm-hmm. side that says, "You know, these conservatives are going to cause a schism because of this, this, and that, and moneyed interest." And so you just see them like furthering the line, like further drawing the line between them and the other side without any indication from the Holy Father that this is what they should be doing. If you think about what our Lord was about to undergo at the crucifixion, and yet he was able to think about the church and how he desired that it be one, that's a pretty big deal. Like if you were about to whip me to a pulp and then nail me to a tree, I don't think I would be thinking about, you know, is is this organization that I'm starting, what's going to happen to it? I mean, so you have <laughs> yeah. to understand... Zach Mayberry, CPA, what will be of that? Yeah. Right. I mean, so y- you have to understand how important this is to our Lord, that we be one, and how that does have to outweigh other considerations. Sure. So, I mean, again, you should not be looking for disloyalty in people. 
you should leave that to the lawful authorities, the bishop, the pope, whoever. And if somebody seems like they're on the brink of schism, you should you should definitely embrace them and you should want to see them in the fold. I mean, Christ leaves behind the 99 to search for the one. Yeah, you I know? I don't know if if this we want to speculate, but like I don't feel like schism is even close. Like I feel like all parties love the church and it's and it's basically just the fighting about the little things, right? I don't I don't feel like there's anyone that we should that we take seriously as a church that is going going to openly lead a schism. I don't I just don't see it. I agree with you when I consider the logistics of it. I mean like so what happens? Like are you guys telling me that you're still going to have, you know, Pope Francis the man in the Holy in the Vatican City mm-hmm. um and then some other group is going to you know for the sake of doctrine it's always i mean it's almost always at least coded like that as being mm. you know for the truth or whatever they're going to you know set themselves up without reference back to the pope i mean if you just think about well, what does that mean so like what happens to the buildings like who pays the taxes i mean i know that's like not necessarily the important thing but if you think about the logistics of a schism it's like i mean what do you think that your parish is going to say okay we're actually going to follow this cardinal burke pseudo church which again they're not going to have cardinal burke on their side um i hate to break it to you guys but whatever pope francis is wrong about uh, he's going to be on the right side of a schism and cardinal burke is going to be on the same side as he is so it's not helpful to to really speculate about this stuff because that's how it's going to go and if you end up on if, if there is some kind of split and and pope francis is on one side and you're on the other side then you've cut yourself off because he's the successor of peter like it or not you know i mean it so again you don't have to agree with everything he says but he's the successor of peter so it doesn't really matter i don't see it's not helpful to just dwell on all the things that you don't like about him or all the things that maybe he gets wrong or his judgments that you think are unwise because if there is a split you have to be on his side anyway so you might as well get used to it yeah god's not gonna cast off the successor of peter and say you were on the yeah, right Michael side Forrest all along the true the, the new successor of peter yeah you were um, on the right side all along this was a test you sniffed it out even yeah even the time that they're have been popes and anti-popes it even even the one example it took a little bit but it all comes back and it all comes around and you we have a we have such a lack of wanting to you know when you you said let go and let god and we laughed because that's a hilarious thing to say Mm -hmm. but i mean in reality we kind of have to do that right like you well yeah some people definitely should (laughs) yeah maybe they should take that more literally Right, and it because it's just at the end of the day, like it, the church is older and bigger and more everlasting than us, right? So we, it, at least here on Earth, but it, it, yeah, it's just one of those like you're not. I'm I'm glad we all love the church, and I'm glad glad we get so passionate and riled up. But at the same time, it just, yeah, it it just what are these really what we need to spend every moment thinking about? Right. And so, you know, what I would say to the side that considers themselves, you know, loyal to Pope Francis, um, I would say, 
you know, stop pointing the finger, stop accusing other people of disloyalty, stop trying to draw the line in a different place than Pope Francis has drawn it, because he has drawn it such that it includes Cardinal Burke um, and, you know, all the cardinals and, you know, these and that. Do not, do not try to enforce a divide that you've, you know, discerned for yourself, even if it seems clear as day. And then what I would say to the the you know the other side or maybe the more traditional this and that is that guys, I think most of you, if you're listening to this uh, or not, in your heart of hearts, you know that Pope Francis is the successor of Peter, which means he will be on the right side of any schism that happens, and you're going to have to be on that side with him. So right, I that's would, I mean that's one of the benefits of being Pope is that Pope can. As long as they're not speaking, you know, with the authority of the the office, they can say things that are wrong, but the p- popes will never be on the wrong side of schism. That's like the one benefit is they will they will always be placed in the correct side. Right. So, I mean, you should really be concerned if everybody who, you know, uh, everybody who sees most issues the way that you see them, if you think that they're all going to, you know, exit stage left in a schism recognize how much that's going to set back your, you know, the the various apostolates and movements and things that you've been a part of and the things that you bless the church with in your own way, all of that's going to crumble if there's a schism because it's going to be your camp that's divided. Right? Like there this isn't going to be a schism that affects the, you know, the board of Commonweal magazine. Or, you know, anybody subscribed to America Magazine. The people that are going to be split and end up opposing each other are going to be the people on sort of the conservative, right, trad side of things. I mean, that that's just how this ism is lining up. So you, there's no reason to use your voice to further criticize and dwell on negative things about the Pope because you're going to have to choose him anyway, and you need other people that want to do the same thing because again it's going to be your parish it's going to be your magazine it's going to be your blog that has half the people go this way half the people go that way right so you know this is why i just don't think that it's it's not like it's a sin to disagree with the pope it's not a sin to criticize him but i think it's currently not helpful you really need to ask yourself if if you're saying that you're doing it you know because of a concern about the salvation of souls, you really need to ask yourself, are you bringing people closer to the church by what you're doing? Right, and just at the natural winners and losers thing, set aside our souls. But like you said, it's going to, if it's going to be the right conservative side that's the one that leans towards this, then, then all the people that they get upset that is on the more lefty side of the church is going to say, see, I told you so, and you don't want them doing that, so don't schism. Don't schism or schism. Right. And, and you know, just don't, when it comes down to it, if it's going to be a split from the Holy Father, maybe just chill on some of the things <laughs> about him. You know, I mean, it doesn't really, you actually, especially as a layperson, you have no obligation to speak out whatsoever. Yeah, as, so, we, as we said Pope Francis knows everything that's going on with cardinals and sees it all. God sees everything going on with Pope Francis. So it's not like God is over there checking stuff out and 
sinister underhanded Pope Francis is like, God's not watching. Let's do all this. Like, it's just, I don't right. know. You just, it's just God happening. knows who the Pope is. God knows who the Cardinals are. No offense, but the church in her wisdom has really never envisioned a large leadership role for, um, I'm going to get shot for this, but the church has not ever envisioned a large leadership role for mothers and fathers. Um, a lot of the people encouraging the sort of anti-Francis thing are have a call of the married vocation and have children, which is amazing. Um, never in the church's history has it sort of envisioned them to have much of a leadership role because, uh, you know, their 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 judgments are best reserved for their family. So, again, I will probably get some really mean comments about that, but, and I'm a big fan of moms and dads. Um, no, but I just it, consider that, you know, that's this the, also again could lead to a discussion on how maybe it's maybe for, I don't know, a couple decades or a hundred years, we should have the laity just kind of stay out of church operations for a bit, but that's another conversation. Well, I mean, One it's such a I'm blessing not, to be the laity. I mean, this is the thing guys, like this isn't, I'm not saying not to care and I'm not saying not to spread the gospel, but I'm saying, you know, guys, you, you don't have to get involved in Vatican politics. You know, you just don't. Sure. And you, the church also doesn't need a savior. The church already has a savior. So mm-hmm. again, you are not, your duty is not to save the church that obviously that duty is taken by Christ. So again, I'm not saying you just renounce everything and just let everything crumble, but maybe keep your focus more local, build up your own parish, you know, be praying your rosary. And, you know, if, if you're going to take what limited time and energy you have to have a voice in these things, maybe look at the situation and, and think, okay, do I absolutely have to talk about this topic? Or, you know, given the state of disunity that's taking place, would it Will we maybe just pass up on this? Prudently decide, you know, maybe in a couple of years we'll talk about the death penalty more. Mm-hmm. Just my thought. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, again, I, you know, I was joking. I had made the comment at one point. I said, you know, you've got to hate the schism, love the schismatic. I, assuming that the church considers someone within the fold, you know, I'm never going to shun them or, you know, do this kind of schoolyard stuff. So I don't, I don't, I don't play those games. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I try not to go after priests that are at least technically speaking within the church and in good standing, Mm -hmm. even if all obvious signs and any reasonable person could see that what they're saying is wrong. It is not my, I'm not the Bishop. I'm not the Pope. So somebody who outranks me has determined that let's say father James Martin, for instance, Somebody who outranks me, factually speaking, has determined that Father James Martin is a priest in good standing. He has a superior. His superior eventually reports to the Pope. Do I like what he says? Do I not like what he says? Does it matter? People that will put, you know, Father in quotations when they're talking about him or things like that. It's like, guys, the sacraments are an objective thing. So he is, in fact, until the end of eternity, a priest. And well, yeah, and the Cole in quotes thing just turns, like, people stop paying attention to you, even if you're saying something good. It just totally undercuts your entire argument. Well, right. I mean, a lot of these people think fondly, as I do, of a time period where the clergy um, did 
receive more deference from the people and did have a more elevated status in society. But you, so, but you can't even. You're kind of saying like, yes, every, we'll respect the priests as soon as they do what we want them to do. So if you can't find a way to be at peace with priests who, in your judgment, you've determined are bad, then you're kind of arguing against the role that the clergy as a whole is meant to play. You know, there's always going to be bad priests. There have always been bad priests. The The argument that we've made is that even with bad priests, the church is a force for good in society. Mm-hmm. If you think that the church should be, you know, frozen in time until all this mess gets sorted out, or that the church needs to get rid of all the bad priests and then be open for business, then you're kind of making the same arguments as the progressives who wanted the church, you know, out of society. Because their whole argument, you know, I mean, monarchists, you're going to have to, if you're arguing for monarchy, you can't, your argument can't be dependent on there always being a good monarch. Like, you have to say monarchy is a good form of government, even when you have a bad monarch, here's why it's still the best form of government. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think Catholicism is good, you need to be able to say even when the clergy are bad, we still call them father. We still, you know, kiss their hand. We still this or that. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't like it, then that's great. We need to be doing penance anyway. You, you know, you need to be fasting, and um, we need to be doing something penitential every day. And so, you know, maybe God's inviting you to do penance by putting, you know, in your line of sight priests that you really don't like. Or a pope that you may have a lot of disagreements with as a way of strengthening your, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, obedience to the church overall. Exactly. And, you know, if, if, if you will point out correctly that you're able to criticize the pope without doubting that he is the pope or without you know being tempted to leave the church just maybe have some sympathy for people who aren't as smart as you and realize that they don't they're not going to read into the nuance of your arguments once mm-hmm. they decide that he's bad they're going to bail then again you can't expect the average person to have an appreciation for nuance that's right unless you just want to be frustrated all the time mm-hmm so yeah, don't schism, and you know if somebody seems like they're schismatic, you just got to go, give them a big hug, and keep them in the church. Just just give them a big hug. I yeah, like that. You gotta just you gotta you gotta hug them tighter because they're trying to schism. <laughs> no, please. Free, don't we're gonna schism. set up a booth. Free hugs for for would be schismatics. Yeah, I'll, I'll set up a booth somewhere. Uh, at a church carnival, just to see. That's how you can weed out schismatics. You catch them off guard. Anyway, I like uh, that idea. So, uh, can I, and then I have one small tangent. I yeah, of course. Talk about. So, uh, you know, penance is a very important part of being Catholic. It's a very important part of just being overall a healthy person. Is to exercise different kinds of penance, whether we're fasting. Um, you know, one of our good friend priests talks about putting, you know, a smooth pebble in your shoe when you walk around. You know, little things. We've done episodes on it. It's an important thing that should be essentially a daily practice of some kind of penance and mortification. But also with that is the feasting aspect of it. And I think in times like now where things seem kind of dark, it's without ever losing sight of the need for penance, without 
without thinking that things are bad enough, I don't need to do penance because being alive is penance now. It is important that the faith be the best thing in your life. So you do still need to feast. You do still need to do things that, with the faith that make you happy. I mean, you feel good. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, feelings are dumb, but like you, you ultimately, you cannot make the faith something that you dread. If you look at people who aren't Catholic and think, I'm so jealous, I wish I was clueless like they are. If you, you know, wish that you could go back to not knowing as much about the faith because then you wouldn't have to follow all these rules, you're, you have got to make a change because you're, you're on a trajectory that's going to lead you into losing your faith. So, again, without ever losing sight of penance, and penance, for the most part, is underutilized, underemphasized, you know, we don't do enough of it, without, without losing sight of that, it's also important to make sure that the faith isn't making you you're not practicing the faith in a way that's making you miserable because eventually you will get tired of it. You will eventually mm-hmm. see people out enjoying their lives, not having to worry about all this stuff, not having to, you know, they can just do whatever they want and you'll start to, you'll start to be jealous of it or you'll start to think, hmm, the doubts will creep in. So you need to make sure that, you know, being Catholic is something that you love and make sure that you're practicing your faith in a way that, you know, you should be happy, guys. We have the only cure for hell, okay? So, you know, cheer up. Cheer up. I like it. I think that's a uh, that's a good thing to to close that on. Shall we have a saint of the week? We shall. Let's hear it. St. Isaac Jogues, S.J., born in France in January 10th, 1607, Died in Canada, or as it was known then, New France, October 18th, 1646. Beatified June 21st, 1925 by Pope Pius XI. Canonized June 29th, 1930 by Pope Pius XI. His feast day is uh, September 26th. He is one of the North American martyrs. He traveled and worked among the native populations in North America. The the native people weren't all that welcoming to the missionaries around that time, contrary to popular belief, which is fine, you know. They didn't no one said they had sure. to be nice to him. Uh but while he was I mean, there the pagans were not nice, so Right. So he he uh, he got his hand mutilated while he was there. They were tortured. Did they cut off his thumb and index finger? Because don't they cut off the fingers that you use to hold, to elevate the host, like the thumb and index finger? Yeah, he basically he he lost his thumb. Like the loss of his fingers was big enough that really he didn't have the necessary, the canonical digits, the necessary things to perform the mass. But Pope Urban VIII considered Jogues a living martyr at martyr and gave him dispensation to say mass with his mutilated hand right so yeah canonical digits is a really cool way of saying your thumb and index finger so when you see the priest at mass when they elevate the host and that's what they hold it with and then you see even when they're holding the chalice or the um cyborium they they keep those two fingers after the after the consecration until the um ablutions which is when they're dipping their the hands in the holy water uh, to essentially rinse them at the end, they keep those two fingers together 
so that no particles are lost. So again, so like they're making like the okay sign with their, so those are the canonical digits. It's not Pope Francis's cell phone number. <laughs> October 18th, 1646, the Mohawks killed Father Jogues with the tomahawk, Zach. It's a, oh, wow. uh, I know, it's a pretty amazing way to That's a cool way to, way to go, though. It's so cool. They threw the missionary's body into the Mohawk River. Uh, the killing seemed to have been the work of an anti-French faction within the Mohawk community. Now, the thing I'm reading here says that they label it, the story holds a curious double martyrdom for Jogues. The aboriginal allies of the French captured the man that killed killed him in 1647 and condemned him to death. Now, while he was awaiting his execution, this man was baptized and renamed with the Christian name of Father Isaac Jogues. So basically, he converted and took on that name and was killed for his crimes. So two Isaac Jogues were put to death in this story. Yeah. Jogues' refusal to escape in the way he embraced torture demonstrates a selflessness that uh, many of the Jesuits in New France, Canada, believed that being martyred would mean partaking in the torment that Jesus had endured on the cross. Uh, so these were very strong, strong-willed men, and they they ultimately paid a paid a price for on earth for it, but became saints, which is very cool. Being a saint is very cool, in fact. Mm-hmm. All right, anything else before we get out of here? I don't think so. I think we've covered it all. Covered it all. Covered every single thing. All right, well, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you all next week. See ya. See ya.